you all. My name is Diane Fleet, and I'm here with KCADV's podcast series. And in the booth today, I have Marcy Timmerman. She's the Executive Director of Mental Health America of Kentucky. So welcome, Marcy. It's really good to see you. Thanks for having me. You are most welcome. Um, It's a conversation that I've been wanting to have with someone, so I'm probably going to bombard you with some questions. Um, But first, before we kind of jump in, I did want to give folks a little bit of time. Can you tell us a little bit about what Mental Health America of Kentucky is all about? Yeah, we've been around since 1951, uh, working on mental health education. So that early intervention, right? We want to do that early, let's understand what mental wellness looks like. Let's understand where that issue is coming in that we need to address early and not letting things get to the severe state if possible. So um, that's a big part of what we do. We do also some advocacy at the state level and local level, trying to improve the mental health system overall. Uh, We are the reason that we have a state mental health department in the first place in Kentucky. Um, Our advocacy actually set the path for that um, back in the day. So we were leaders in mental health at one point in Kentucky. So other things that we do, we have free mental health screenings online that I'll probably reference a couple of times. So if folks want to check those out, mhaky.org is our email or our website. And so please go and check out a free screening anytime. Um, Those are really helpful to a lot of folks. They are not just a test. They're a clinical test that people would have taken at like the doctor's office. We made them much more approachable for the modern world. (laughs) So they're online, they're anonymous, they're free. um, And folks can also get connected to some DIY tools at the bottom uh, after they take their test. Some of them will come up as suggested articles and things like that. So you're not just on your own hanging out there with the results that you're seeing. Is this something that you're finding that practitioners and community service programs and agencies and domestic violence programs like ours are utilizing for their their clients and, and the folks that they're working with? Or are you finding that people are coming to you individually to these websites and just finding this information on their own? It's a little bit of both. I think um, our 25,000 screenings uh, in the past uh, year and a half have been mostly from our web, like national website getting found. And then they put in that by voluntary that tell us that they're from Kentucky. But we also have heard providers who are like, well, this is easy. I'll just have them email me the results every time. So a lot of private practitioners are using it as a way to just help screen their patients and get the most out of their appointment when they come up. I'm sort of loving this, actually. And I'm sort of really embarrassed that we have not done this more. So I work at a domestic violence program, Greenhouse 17, as we were talking about before we started. And, and I'm sure some of our advocates would go, oh, yes, Diane, we have done this before. But I don't know that it's routine by any means. And, and I think to a degree, we're always a little bit careful. We're going to be talking about trauma further down in this conversation, but we're a little bit careful about over-diagnosing folks. Mm-hmm. A lot of times what we think are people's sort of very normal human experience and response to trauma. And that, of course, we might be dealing with some stress and anxiety and inner turmoil when we've been just had a displaced from our home and the person that we love has been abusive or controlling. And so we try to be careful of that because there's so much stigma on victims of domestic violence. But at the same time, I also know that a lot of our folks that we work with residentially and non-residentially could really benefit from having this screening tool. And I know our advocates could really benefit from that partnership. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot of folks are using it too individually as like a symptom checker. Maybe I was high last week, but I'm kind of moderate this week. It really gives you like low, moderate and severe results. And if you're, you know, if you're suicidal, it's going to 
pop up the 988 number and have you give it a call, right? It's not going to just let you keep going. But yeah, it's really useful, I think. Um, it probably does have some limitations with your people right? Uh, because it's a standardized test, right? Sure. It's not specific to violence victims but or survivors, rather. But yeah, I think that there's definitely some places we could use them. <laughs> that could be really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So so also before we get going, I know one of the conversations you have is always definitions. And I think that that's always really critical in a lot of conversations that we have. And I think around this, it could be really good. Um, we have a tendency to toss around words such as counseling, therapy, advocacy, and lots of folks use those very interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Other people have very specific um, definitions as to what they mean by that. So if mm -hmm. I tell an advocate to go counsel with someone, they'll go, I'm not a counselor. I don't have, you know, the degree to do that. Where really, I'm just meaning spend time with someone, right? You know, right. Have some sort of intentional conversation with, with mm -hmm. a person. But with that, can we talk a little bit about definitions when it comes to mental health, just so we're all on the same, you know, playing field. Yeah. Um, when I'm talking about mental health in general, we all have a brain, right? We all have he mental health then. Do it's we? Like, yes. We, we should do. have some okay. kind of mental health. Yes. And uh, yeah, whenever I approach a group, they're like, "You, everybody has a brain, really? But you all got there somehow, right? <laughs> you all got to the podcast somehow. So, you know, mental health is a big word in a big world. It's just like, you know, heart health. It's a huge picture. Uh, when we go to mental health condition, that is something that maybe isn't quite so serious to be called an illness yet, but it's something that's going on. Um, one example I will pull from is someone who's had, you know, a major physical disability come upon them, right? They might have a mental health condition for a little while because that's a reasonable thing. So your folks who have experienced violence and are, you know, in the process of moving, they might have some mental health conditions, situations that they're having. But those might also be called mental health challenges. Those are almost interchangeable the way I use them. Other professionals might use them differently. Um, if we talk about mental illness, we are talking about someone who is probably pretty sick, um, at least consistently sick. So someone who is on maybe a depression medication or anxiety medication for six months or so. Um, if without medicine, maybe they've been seeing a therapist for a while or their illness um, has impaired their living incredibly. Um, it's usually pretty severe for a month, two months, three months. We're talking about a lot, much longer time. Conditions and challenges tend to be, you know, challenges probably a couple of weeks, right? We all have a rough time for a couple of weeks. That doesn't mean you don't validate that and that you need help, but it's just a little less than. <laughs> so, but mental illness is really more of a clinical term and it's two weeks or more of impairment, typically speaking. So, um, but I would say when I use it, I'm talking more like six months to a year <laughs> impairments. Um, any mental illness is a term that is used by um, providers out there and researchers. Uh, when they talk about it, they're talking about anyone who identifies as having mental illness, and that's a pretty big umbrella. So it might be someone who's experienced violence. It might be someone who's had some trauma in their life and says, yeah, I know it bothered me, but I'm not in treatment right now. Any mental illness. Could be, I've just stressed this week. <laughs> And they answered correctly on the on the right survey. When they talk about serious mental illness, it's usually serious persistent mental illness or serious mental illness. Those are things that have impacted you for over a year. And a lot of times have involved in like job loss, family relationships breaking up, things like that. What I, please correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this in any in any means. I do think sometimes it's really difficult to discern the trauma and the trauma experience and the condition. I love that. I've never heard that language around. So the condition or the challenge versus whether somebody is really experiencing ongoing mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. And I do find, and I'm talking really about shelter experience. When you're in shelter, I think in the midst of all of that crisis, coming to a new place, being displaced, living now in a, in a community of 40 other people that are kind of experienced trauma and stress. And, and just navigating all that. 
I often will tell staff, just give this person a week or two to settle in. Like, Mm -hmm. let's get them safe. Let's get them fed. Let's care for them. Let's just sort of wrap around and not have big expectations of them doing lots of programming in this beginning phase. And then we can begin to see if things start to kind of stabilize a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's hard sometimes to get a survivor in that space too, because they come in and go, I got to get out of here, right? So they're they're kind of going, going, going. But, But if we can just get them to get to kind of a homeostasis place, if possible. So I'm thinking maybe we're a little bit on track with that, that maybe that two week window might give us a difference if we're experiencing the response to something or we've got something else going on. Yeah, I think that's a really good advisable window from what I've talked about. Um, I should mention though, I should make it clear to everyone, I'm not a provider of mental health services, so I'm not a doctor or therapist, Um, but I talk to a lot of them and a lot of this information has been vetted by them. Uh, What we would probably typically say in that is, yeah, there's a peer environment space that you all build inside your shelters, I think, um, and that has value too. So that's an intervention as well, right? And we also say you can't have mental health if you don't have stable housing, a safe place to keep your head at night, right? At least food, clothing, the basics. So if they're not feeling basically safe, right, right, they can't really be mentally well. Which I think fits yeah. so much with all of our Housing First program that we're, yeah. that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And even going back to old Maslow's hierarchy, right? We can't yeah. really kind of build if we're not a little bit at that place. Mm-hmm. And so as much as this tool could be really interesting, I would almost somewhat say to delay, and again, I'm just talking in shelter, mm-hmm. delay a little bit for a week or so till you kind of get it a place. And now we can maybe get some accurate response. Yeah. And it's really, a kind of nebulous response to from it. So it would be, you know, you'd want to have a professional kind of look over it and see if there's something that someone needs to be seen about. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, it's a big picture, right? And what you all are dealing with is complicated. So proceed carefully, but it would be interesting. And if y'all are using it, let me know and we can have some good chats about that. I think, I think it'd be good. You know, I think it's an area that we have a tendency to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. And some oh, of yeah. the other conversations that I've had, you know, throughout these the series is we sometimes if we're uncomfortable, we don't feel we have the skill level, we don't really know. So we're just going to avoid that conversation altogether. And then it just grows and grows and grows. We really do think if we just don't look that way, it all will, all will get better. And it's really much better if we can just sort of meet it head on with a little bit of confidence and partnerships, right? Yeah. You know, I do tell advocates, you don't have to be everything to everybody, right. but you can have a conversation. It doesn't mean you just hand people phone numbers either, right? It's sort of an in-between of those two things. Yeah. And our mental health first aid, we call that assessment and approaching, right? And are you the right moment to do that? Are you the right person to do that? Sometimes you're not, right? Sometimes you're the boss lady or you're the one who has the power to kick them out of the shelter, right? Like, so maybe you're not the one to have that conversation either. So it's good to have good realistic expectations of what you can accomplish too. Absolutely. Those trust pieces, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to tell you the truth if I think you have power to, yeah. to to get me out of here. And so we talk a lot about that. And I think some of the conversation later on is providing, you know, a trauma-informed response uh-huh. is is how do you build that trust and how do how does your programming, how does a person go through the process of inter- interacting with your domestic violence program or whether you're with DCBS or whoever it is that you may be, um, take a look back and kind of reflect and see if some of these things might kind of give you false answers or, or or slow you down in your relationship with that individual. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So even though I'm going to move in a little bit, I think to the, okay. do you call it the B4, do you call it the B4 stage philosophy? B4 five. B4 stage four. B4 mm-hmm. stage four philosophy. But 
And I, I told you I was going to do this a little bit in the beginning. I want to talk a bit about a bit caveat too, as we're going through the whole process to be looking at how we can provide mental health, mental health support with our, certainly the folks that are coming to us to receive services. But Marcy, I am struggling right now that all of the community, all of our staff, the whole world, I was at a conference with all tech, I don't know, it was a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And they said the pervasive thing that your employees are going to be dealing with is loneliness, anxiety, and stress. Like it is coming and it's already here. And I think so much, I think here we are a trauma-informed agency, right? Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> we're dealing with people, but we're not always the best at dealing with our own staff and our own and our own selves, right? So we're service oriented, we're helping other folks, but we're often assuming the professionals will be the professionals, they will take care of their things. And I'm telling you, staff are needing a lot of support right now. And it is beyond just our community of staff. It is it is a national and or worldwide trend. So I only say all of that with as we're going through, I hope people are kind of listening in that this is not just for folks that we're serving, but we can't do good work if we ourselves are not well. Yeah. Can't can't pour from an empty cup, as they say. Cannot. Yeah. yeah. And that's really important. And I, I do try to put this into practice in my personal life, too, which is not easy sometimes when you work in this space. And I know so, so many of you have the same issue where it's easy for me to be compassionate and empathetic to someone on the phone or in front of me who has needs that are clear. It's so much harder to be compassionate to myself or some of my fellow workers in this space. So yeah, it's it's hard to do that. You have to be really intentional about it. You do. And I think we feel tremendous guilt around it. Mm-hmm. I sometimes will say that, you know, social workers or social worker folks are the worst people to help because they don't want to ask for help. They don't want to bother. They're embarrassed that they're feeling this way. They should know better. They should have the tools. But I, we just need to know we are all in this together. And, I, and yep. it is a big issue right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, as they say, every therapist has a therapist, or at least they should. <laughs> So that is actually advisable professional advice for every social worker and therapist out there. But yeah, in case you're feeling alone, one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year, and that was before COVID, y'all. So I think we're going to see a higher number and a higher frequency. Um, and that's just each year, right? That wasn't That's not permanent lifetime. So look around you. If there's six people in the room, two of you have probably had an issue, I'm going to guess. Um, one in 20 U.S. adults experience a severe mental illness each year. One in 20 of us. Think about how big y'all have of an organization here at KCADV. There's a lot of folks in all the different shelter spaces and advocates. So it's not unusual for someone to, to get sick, and that person could be you, <laughs> and you may not realize it even. Um, 50% of illness um, begins by age 14 and 70 75% by age 24. But we know that more than 40% of folks don't get any kind of help at all, don't seek assistance for their issue. Um, so when we see folks with that mental illness that's severe, they may not be getting help. They may have been so adapting to what they were dealing with that they're just living in that space and not realizing that they're not well. And I think that's a real risk we all take, especially as we're givers, because y'all are all givers. I guarantee it. Listening to us, you're givers, empathetic, empathetic folks. You know, you're dealing with a lot. It's a lot to pour out. And you kind of think, oh, well, it's normal for me to feel this way. And it is to a point. But where's that line? Right. <laughs> and that's not always clearly defined. When we talk about before stage four, though, what we're talking about is really trying to get to people before it gets to serious mental illness. We want folks to get help early. So we talk about stage one as being mild symptoms and warning signs, just like we would for cancer, right? You talk about stages one, two, three, and four. Stage two is really that increase in frequency severity, right? So symptoms are interfering with your activities and roles. Maybe not every day, but they're interfering a lot. 
they're starting to get to where, oh my gosh, you're crying every day before you go into work. That is a problem, folks. <laughs> you shouldn't be crying before you get to work, <laughs> right? <laughs> With what That's y'all do, flag. it's okay to cry on the job, I'm sure, but, and maybe after about something, but before you even go in, that's a sign. Yeah, that's a concern. And really, stage three is when they're worsened with relapsing and recurring episodes. So they happen over and over again, or they really haven't ever stopped, right? And you're looking at that four, five, six weeks, couple of months, maybe even a year where you're like, oh, I seem to have this like thing every winter. I hate winter because I'm sad all winter. Um, Y'all, there's something called seasonal affective disorder. (laughs) Maybe check that out, you know, if if you hate winter, right? Because you're always sad. But people have lived for years like that, right? We didn't know that was a thing we needed to treat or could treat, right? We just thought that was the normal thing. But stage four is when folks are in that suicidal space or being admitted to the hospital or jail against their will, right? So that's where we really want to stop things from happening. That's really our overall philosophy with everything we do at MHA. So is there some things that you would recommend if you were if you were implementing programming or implementing kind of just HR support, right? I'm going to do kind of dual places that will, one, do some of that preventative work, knowing that we work in high stress, uh, vulnerable, high emotional kind of spaces. Um, is there things that you would sort of know that you've you've seen over time that you would recommend to kind of both help the, the recipients of services as well as the providers? I think one thing is to make sure people have the adequate time off that they need to recover. You know, if somebody they've been on the phone with and something serious happens, jumping right back in feels like a great idea sometimes and sometimes it's not. So being able to gauge that and that's really one-on-one, very difficult. But another thing, um, I was just coming from another event and, and I was brought up the whole, there needs to be five people in your life that you can talk to about anything who are not part of your family. And I think when you're in your space, I would say who aren't at work. Because it's easy to talk to people who are at work, hopefully. And hopefully you can foster some of those relationships. If not, that would be a red flag for me about your workplace. So, you know, foster some relationships among staff. Not gossip relationships, but helpful, supportive ones, right? (laughs) It's okay to have someone to go cry in their office, right? Or have a moment where you're like, just dying laughing and you have to go tell someone. That's my favorite. Like, you know, that's your person. And that's good. But you also need people who are not involved in the work and who are not living with you 100 times. (laughs) 100% of the time or aren't related to your mother so that they won't get back to your mother. Yeah, right. You right. need that space. The, the safe person, the safe person. Yeah. Well, I, no, I think you're right. And it's, I like the five person rule. And I do think I'm just trying to think of our own personal plays. I hope people that are listening in are kind of doing the same thing. But lots of times our staff don't have the bandwidth to care for themselves, their coworkers, and their client base, right? They just don't, they just don't have the ability. But yet they know the importance of being there for somebody and somebody's crying. Like you're not going to walk in someone's room crying and go, I'm sorry, I just can't really deal with you right now. But if we kind of do some preventative or preparation work ahead mm-hmm. of time, that I these are my folks. Yeah. You know, I can't I can't give this to so and so down the hall. Ten people can't give her right. all of their stuff. She can't hold that up. And I see that happening actually quite a bit in programs like ours. I shouldn't be shocked to hear that. I'm yeah. not really. Yeah, I didn't think about that though. You're right. And thanks for helping set the placing a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. That's why needing those outside helpers is great. And, you know, keeping privacy, right? We want to keep private things private for our clients, but you can still have someone else who yeah. can help carry that load. Sometimes that person's a spiritual leader. Yes. Sometimes that person is your best friend growing up, right? Who understands everything about you and you don't have to say half the words. 
<laughs> I love those relationships when we can keep them. But it is hard to set good boundaries on your time and your energy. And I think that is one thing that I've done recently that helped me was I made an energy budget <laughs> for myself. I'm writing that down, Marcy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was something that a tool that someone gave me. And I was like, I love this tool because I actually have some autoimmune issues that make me low energy. She's like, you have to plan your days around your low energy. So create a budget around low energy. And then when you have extra energy, great. <laughs> and I was like, I love this. So I had to budget my time. How much energy am I giving my family today? How much energy am I putting into work? How much energy do I have to put into a work thing that's happening three weeks from now? And, you know, and I had to write it out. It was hard. <laughs> it was hard work. Was it, it was hard because you had to cut things out? Yeah. I did. I had to choose what was important. It's also hard sometimes to see on paper how much time you spend in different spaces that maybe aren't good. Like my social media space was way bigger than it should have been. And I was like, wow, I'm the person who tells people to get off social media (laughs) for their mental health. And I was not apparently Which I was going to say, I have to say, I think adds a lot to you would think as connected we are, you know, through social media. I think it is just pervasive of the loneliness of it, right? It's not true connection. It's not face-to-face connection. It's pretend connection. Yeah. Maybe not with everything. I kind of like to know, I keep in touch with family out of state a little Mm -hmm. bit. That's friendly. Yeah. You know, but, but a lot of it is a falsehood. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of a two-sided sword, a double-edged sword on that one. Because, yeah, you, I have a whole group that I love that gives me life and is wonderful. And I've almost met none of them in person. And they're all on Facebook. And we're all executive directors of nonprofits all across the country. And it's a great group. And they're my good friends. But I can't also even give them all that time. Because I wouldn't have in my real life, right? Like, I wouldn't have been able to sit down with 10 of them for three hours, right? And I'm like, our weekly Zoom is good. We do that. <laughs> I should probably stick to that for a while, you know? And then you can doom scroll all day long by accident on social media, right? You can go, oh my gosh, something has happened here. This thing has happened here. This happened to so-and-so. You don't realize how that adds up to your own stress. So yeah, putting a time limit on it and creating lists. In both Facebook and Twitter, I have the ability to create curated lists and groups of people. And I love doing that because like I can check up with family by hitting a group and not have to see everything else that shows up in my newsfeed. Focus is you. Yeah, it's really, I'm consciously going in to find out what my family in Ohio is up to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or I'm consciously going to this group of people I like and we'll see what they're up to. And I have some pages on that, some nonprofits I love, like Greenhouse 17 yeah. is on there. You know, I want to find out what they're doing this month and what other people are posting. So it's really been helpful to, to section those things off so that my energy is spent really wisely when I go in and engage. One of the things that I just did, I'm going to kind of toot my own horn a little bit, but but I I am kind of an obnoxiously optimistic person. Like I, I just I'm kind of I'm kind of good. But I when I turn on my computer, my web page browser, whatever that thing is called, immediately came on to news. So I knew every stabbing, every murder, every political something, every fire house that burned down. Like I knew it just popped up, you know? And so I just think it was this drip, drip, drip of, oh my, there is just mayhem everywhere. So last night I actually spent a great deal of time figuring, I couldn't figure out how to just get a happy homepage, but I was able to hide it all. So now I just think I have jellyfish that just like, it was the top banner, (laughs) but now all the new stuff is gone and I have to search for it because I didn't want it. Right. I did the same with my phone. It loves to give me, I have a Google phone and it 
loves to give me the Google News feed. And I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want it. I can't handle that on top of the other things that are on my lap, right? I'm dealing with another crisis right now. I don't have time to know about another one. Right. Yeah. And I feel like you can be an informed citizen, but you know, we used to watch the news for what, an hour a week, you know, an hour a night, even an hour a day. So limit that. And now bit. it's and now it's just ever it's all the time twenty four seven day. It's twenty four seven. It's too yeah. much. Yeah. The other thing back on the on the other. So we we're talking about staff, but I think I think as you're looking at own programs, also the other thing happens with the residents that are in shelter as well. And so they're starting to build a relationship. They need to build connection. They want friendship, but they're often you know I always feel a little guilty because I'll tell people when they're first coming in, of course you should be friendly and of course you should be kind to the people that you're meeting, but be careful how much you let them in. You don't really know people quite so well, but I hear them oversharing so much information, and then that becomes a real heaviness for the other person and they're dealing with their own stuff much on top of this person's substance use relapse. And and I know the reality is not they're going to come to staff every time, right? I, I know that, but I haven't created an alternative. So I know out on the back porch at Greenhouse 17, that's where all the women are going to congregate and share their, the heaviness of what they're going through. And, and so I think being able to help them also create their own budget plans and their in their energy plans and what they can do and who's your five safe people and it can't just be everybody one for your own safety of oversharing but also just to emotionally protect yourself yeah there's one more trick that i just learned um that i really like mine and in my case i use it for food at the end of a meal i say wow i'm done and that was delicious just to consciously put that i ate that day in my head and i think if you have some kind of ritual at the end of things it helps to end them and so maybe if you're okay with people info dumping at you maybe you're like envisioning a little wall where you're kind of keeping to yourself a little bit holding off on living with them every every emotion everything they're going through because i think we do that we mirror them a lot right we start absorbing kind of their stress and their problems and you really have to kind of visually put that that shield up and I'm sure you all do it all the time um that doesn't mean you're not caring and that you're not hearing them right let's be clear it means okay I'm not going to take this into my heart and feel every single piece of this stress you have to do that and then at the end of my work day now what I do is I have like a little closing procedure for my desk and like that's it I'm done for the night doesn't mean I'm not available for emergencies. My job is that kind of job, but it means I'm really done thinking about all the projects I haven't done, the to-do list. And I think you can do that too with that porch, right? If I leave the porch, I'm done with that. That stuff stays there, that heavy stuff stays out there, and I'm going to come inside with a new thought. I like that. I think that could be really beneficial. And I I think every domestic violence program across the country has a back porch of some sort, right? Whether it's the kitchen or the living room. Yeah, wherever that space is. Wherever that space is, they definitely... That energy just sits there. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it does. And And I, yeah... I really like that. Something else you said that I thought was really interesting, but I have to come back to it. It wasn't the ritual. I love ritual. And I think that does sort of do that closure. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I, I think another thing that's been interesting in, in COVID time, right? So many people are working from home. Mm-hmm. And so moving from workspace, right? Your ritual often was you left the building, you got in your car, you drove home. I've transitioned into space. And I was talking to a woman who used to work with us. She's at UK now. And she said, I had to be really intentional that this part of my house was my workspace and I made it workspace. It wasn't, I wasn't at the kitchen table. I wasn't, she had to set that 
mm-hmm. you know, boundary around it. And I could I could see where it could just drip oh, yeah. all over. Yeah. Work papers shouldn't be in the kitchen. I have a home office. It's my primary space. So <laughs> work papers don't go in the kitchen. They're not allowed there. They have to stay at my desk. I've gotten so good that when I sit in that office, I share it actually with my husband and son who, you know, just play video games and things like that at night. I can't go in and like hang out with them because that's my workspace. I start working because that's my space. And that's, it helps though, because it means I've done it, right? That's right. <laughs> I've actually effectively made it that my office. And now, you know, if I'm other places, I can have fun and relax. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Um, okay. So I'm going to move in a little bit to the levels of stress, mm-hmm. if that's okay with yeah. you. Since I think that seems to be something that's popping up with mm-hmm. folks again all the time. Yep. And how to manage that. And sort of what's been, you know, popping up with folks as to why, again, we're finding this to be so acute. Um, but also again, staff-wise, but also knowing that our residents are having to deal with us and our client base having to deal with stress all the time. We're coming from amazingly stressful homes and having to manage that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stress is so important to our lives. You know, there's good stress, right? There's positive stress. And we call, that's a little green thing on this image that we've pulled that we use in our trauma-informed training. Brief increases in heart rate, mild elevations, and stress hormone levels. That's what happens to you physically with a little positive stress. You know, that pressure to perform, to be awesome, you know, all of that stuff mostly can be positive stress, right? It's positive to want to run away from a danger, (laughs) right? Those things are good. Then we talk about tolerable stress, serious temporary stress responses buffered by supportive relationships. Hopefully, that's where we often want to be when we're in these tough jobs. I don't think we live a lot in just positive stress. We tend to have more tolerable stress. Toxic stress, though, is when a prolonged activation of stress response systems and the absence of protective relationships. So we're back to that, having those people who are in your life who can support you and understand you, um, which can produce physiological changes that lead to lifelong problems in learning, behavior, and health. And I don't think we stress enough how linked mental and physical health are. For a long time, we thought they didn't really have anything to do with each other. Yeah, your heart health is 100% linked to how much stress you have. Like there are other factors, right? There's genetics and other things and exercise and diet, but stress is such a huge impact. And if you're in that toxic work environment, it's gonna make it more likely that you have a heart attack or stroke. Those are just a couple things I pull out physically. There's other things that can happen. You know, autoimmune diseases happen a lot higher amongst nonprofit professionals, especially folks who live in this empathy space that we live in. We have to be careful to manage that stress. So anything different on that as far as things to sort of, well, let me come back a little bit. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in that, because we we're talking again about who your five people are, right? Mm-hmm. You said that before. And so if you're mitigating your stress, one of the things that I think programs can really do is help people identify they're five people, right? Mm-hmm. Because lots of times who has been your support in the past no longer can be your support. Yeah. Either it's abusive partner or it's where you used to, you maybe used to use and do substances and, and drug use with that person. So it's no longer safe for you mm-hmm. in your sobriety for, yeah. for whatever. Maybe it was a, a parent that actually is not supportive at the present moment. So sometimes you're having to redefine and mm-hmm. recommit to a whole new created family of friends and support. And I think, I don't know that we do a great deal of time in helping people identify, I don't quite know how to do it. I'm just sort of talking about yeah, say <laughs> I don't really know, but I do know we do so much with transitioning people out of shelter, moving people into housing programs, helping them with transitional housing. And I think one of the indicators whether a person is successful when they leave shelter is do they have a support system around right. them? And we're not always the best at creating, helping them create a support system around them. And I think what we have a tendency to do is go, well, you can go to the support group. But people
people need informal support systems, right? They need the girlfriend on the back porch they can just talk to and they don't have to use all the words, like you said a minute yeah. ago. They, they don't need a visit. Just, they <laughs> need a visit. And so I some attention on how to help folks sort of build and identify that could be really, really helpful. Um, and I don't know that it's something we do, that we set people up for success knowing their emotional needs. I think it's interesting with our substance use folks. You mentioned those folks in recovery, that kind of recovery. Um, the 12-step program, right? It does that for them some. If they come to group, they have a sponsor, they have someone that can just fill in half their sentences half the time from their own experience, right? It's that peer support. And yeah, we do have to find that, but it may not be easy to do that, especially since it's a bunch of survivors together, right? And they have different needs and different situations. So yeah, but matching up mentors um, has worked in the past for some folks, folks that have already been through the program, have you know gone on and been successful, coming back and giving a little bit of their time if they're able you know, obviously we don't want to stress anyone out. Um, but yeah, that's just an idea. But, you know, I'd love to explore that more with folks if anyone's interested in looking at more like how to form adult friendships and things like that information. I've got some, just don't have it off the top of my head. I know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay. And, and I think it would be a really interesting conversation for folks to go down. I, I don't know many programs now that don't have, I mean, certainly we're working with people as they're leaving programs and going, you know, back out into the community. Most everybody now has housing programs. So we're, we're doing little pieces of that, but mm-hmm. I don't know that the intention is solidly there. Or are we just looking for activities that people can do that they might end up finding some friendships? Mm-hmm. So in yeah. Lexington, we have the Carnegie Center, right? So, you know, maybe a referral to the Carnegie Center for people to do writing workshops or photography workshops, or it's just a different way to connect with human beings that might be safer um, than just sort Take of being... that Michael's class, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Whatever might be interesting to you, whether it's art or dance or, or the random things, the parks and recreation and a lot of these towns have small groups that meet doing different things. You can use meetup.com to find folks, you know, just go to a walking club. <laughs> It's amazing how you can find friends eventually by putting yourself out there. But you have to be brave enough and well enough to do that. So sometimes no, you got to find that space. <laughs> That's always the issue, right? You, know, you, know, you don't want to go there like and like info dump on people all your trauma and stress so you have to be well enough to do that but that's right it's like I feel like I need to go exercise but I want to lose weight before I exercise because I get out of breath but I won't (laughs) so it's that just show up I know just go for a walk (laughs) Diane don't overthink it thank you so much for that so Mm -hmm. so let's shift into trauma I think we throw around the conversation of trauma-informed care a little recklessly I think we I don't think we all are on the same terms as to or definitions as to what we mean mm-hmm. by that. So anyways, I, I think we all say that we are trauma-informed programs, and I don't know necessarily that we are, mm-hmm. or we certainly could do better. And it helps a little bit to know the definition, because then yeah. you can kind of go back and go, well, I meet these things, but we could really do some work here. So can we talk a little bit about trauma-informed? You know, I think we're all in a growth phase with trauma-informed care. Wherever you are and start, remember it's a growth process, right? It's not a thing you can flip a switch on and create a whole new system. So I think in some ways, domestic violence folks have always been a little trauma-informed because people come to you because they've had trauma. You know that they're walking in the door that way. But there's still a tendency to be like, you're acting really weird. She's acting wacky. Like, I just don't know, right? And we we blame the behavior on the person and their individual. And I think we need to remember the key question there is what happened to them? 
to make them have this reaction or to establish that behavior. And if we're all walking around with that thing in our head, it's amazing how different the world at large looks. <laughs> your church folks look different. You know, your neighborhood, your family looks different. If you start asking that question, then you've really internalized what we're trying to teach in trauma-informed care is like, what happened to you to make you do that? You know, or why are you having that reaction? I don't understand why you're angry at me. You know, being able to have that real frank conversation. But honestly, that's something we're all learning. I don't think that everyone was born with that innately, and it's not really baked into our culture yet. Um, but one of the definitions um, with trauma that we use, at least in our training, um, is events um, convey actual or perceived threat of death, serious injury, or sexual violation of oneself or someone else. So that's a traumatic event. Right. And your folks have had many of them before they've walked in the door. Pretty much guaranteed. Um, experiences, trauma experiences, unique individual perception of threat to oneself or to someone else. Yeah. Someone close to you worried about your kids. Right. That's why people come to you so often. Right. So I think it's a given in your space that you have these things. When we talk about a traumatic effect, it's an adverse, maybe long lasting and global impact, social, emotional, cognitive, spiritual and physical development and functioning could be literally anything. And you can experience trauma in the weirdest ways. It's as simple as something like I have a friend who lives through Hurricane Katrina and she doesn't watch hurricanes on television. She can't watch them because they give her stress. Not quite post-traumatic stress disorder level, but it freaks her out, right? It makes her remember all the things she lost and the things she went through. And that was trauma. And watching the new hurricane would be trauma too. And we have to remember it's a really broad word. And it does get bandied about a lot, I think. You're right in that case. Yeah, some of the types of trauma that we talk about, you know, car accidents count as trauma, y'all. I don't know how many people I've met who either don't drive or don't drive at night or something because they've had an accident and it takes them a while to get used to it. Or maybe it impacts their life for their whole life. Did they get help? Maybe, maybe not. You know, it may not be PTSD to them. <laughs> to them, it might be, I just learned my lesson and I, right? I don't have to get help for that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really kind of big spectrum issue, I think. And we have to remember that what someone else deviates as a trauma, maybe it's up to them and their experience. It's not up to us to impose on them. Like, you know, oh, it's less than so-and-so. Let's not get into the survival Olympics here, right? We don't get into the suffering Olympics. You know, it's all—it's okay to feel what you feel. It's, you know, comparing it to other people is a whole different ball game. We don't do that. And I'm sure you all don't as well. But yeah. True, but I think we do that, right? It's easy and to do it, that. It's, yeah. easy, it's <laughs> easy to do that. And I think you can do that in your own personal thing. Like I shouldn't even um, be complaining about this because whatever or you know so and so thinks they have it bad well oh my gosh you should see what you know this has happened to yeah. me and I think sometimes we do it with limited resources you know of of how do you discern who gets to come into shelter versus not well you're sometimes measuring up right the trauma that right. someone has experienced because I got one bed and two people want it right and right so you get a little bit into that space and and I going down that conversation is a bad road right yeah. it's just it's so hard it's so hard and how people experience trauma and how they internalize that and who what their resources are and how they are able to adapt I think is so unique from person to person um and I think we have a terrible tendency and I think it's in domestic violence world for sure because it's kind of like car accident that you said a second ago most people know someone who's experienced it a little bit so it's so easy to kind of go back into your own life and go well this is how I dealt with it so so and so should deal with it this way too where there's other things maybe that you can be more compassionate about if somebody was diagnosed with cancer right and I've never had it well I don't know I'm just going to take what this person tells me 
but I know a lot of people have experienced domestic violence. And what you're doing over here just seems bizarre. I can't figure, you know? Yeah. So we can bring in a lot of judgment around that. Yeah, in mental health first aid, we teach non non judgmental listening. It's not easy. It's, it's not two letters, two words. They're the simplest, like smallest step when you write them all out. And it's the hardest thing I teach because it's hard to give yourself that minute and that pause to drop the judgment. And that's what we teach is to to take a pause before you react to something. And it's hard to train yourself to do that too. (laughs) So in mental health first aid, you're probably just a regular person on the street learning how to actually have a tough conversation, which y'all have all the time. It gets, you have to get the habit though of making that pause and dropping the judgment intentionally. And you're right. It's not easy to do. (laughs) I don't know, Marcy, if it was yours, but I had a few staff went through the mental health first aid and loved it. Can you just talk about that just a, a teeny bit for folks that might be interested in exploring that for their own their own training or their own programs? Yeah, and I'm not the only one who does it. There's a lot of us in the state now who are offering mental health first aid. So please, you know, Google it, look it up. Uh, feel free to use us as well. I'm happy to find you a training if mine are full right now. I'm adding a trainer. So we'll have some classes soon. Uh, mental health first aid really is for everyone. It's written for the general public. It is an evidence-based program though. It teaches you about identifying the signs and symptoms of mental health issues. So what those conditions might be, what those challenges are, when do you need to approach someone, right? And when is it getting worse or what does it look like? And then how to handle things like, you know, someone tells you they're suicidal. How do you fix that? How do you help it? Help them with that, right? You can't fix it. How do you help them with it? How do you sit with them with that? And get used to asking the question, are you suicidal, right? That is not an easy thing to say. It's taken me years to practice. Um, it's really hard to say that out loud to an empty room, let alone to someone you love, right? It's really hard. And then we also talk about, you know, things like psychosis and substance use and what all that looks like and where it's worsening. Um, you know, psychosis is really difficult. Someone going through it, you probably don't think about how it feels when you're the person, right? Sometimes we think about, oh, I have this psychosis person. I have to help them, blah, blah, blah. And then you don't think about what it feels like for them on their side. And it really shows a good, good aspect of that. But really the toolkit is really good. Um, it is there is a charge for it. Uh, it can't be offered free unless there's some grant funding to help, which I do have some grant funding still left here in Kentucky for students. Um, and there are others who have it as well. So hopefully you can find a free class for folks. Um, but it is an eight-hour class. It's not easy. It's not a light little one. But, you know, regular first aid, the real physical first aid takes a long time. It's six to eight hours. So it's about the same. Well, it is really, you know, it's really impactful conversations and they are hard conversations. And some of those things, I think, just our practice, like you just said a second ago, is just being comfortable with the inquiring um, and, and with the ask. And if we stumble over it, then it's kind of awkward and it's not helpful to them. And so I think a lot of times people avoid these conversations just out of fear. We might have mentioned that earlier, just out of fear of, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel totally um, apt. Is that a word? Uh-huh, I know yep. you can be inept, but apt at <laughs> doing <Yep>. apt. <laughs> um, and so I'm just going to avoid this and hopefully that it goes away because I want to do damage, right? I don't want to do damage. I don't want to cause harm. And I know suicide folks will often say, you're not going to create somebody to go commit suicide because you've asked them, right? right? So feel comfortable asking that question, but it mm-hmm. is a practice to yeah, do. Yeah, you've got to learn to ask it without that judgment piece coming into it, without being too upset off the start so that they don't trust you to have that conversation. You all have hard conversations every day. It's the same kind of rules, right? And I really think having that, that I need, I think you need to go see someone, right? That can go really badly with some people if you don't have the right words, the right concept of how to approach them. If you haven't really thought about how you're going to do it and you just blurt it out. Because mm-hmm. I'm telling you, my dad would have told you, you told me to see a shrink. 
what? I'm not crazy. You're the crazy one. I'm done here. This conversation is over, you know? (laughs) Right, right. So you have to kind of lead in with, I'm worried about you because, you know, your behaviors, your thoughts, the feelings you're seeing with them or hearing from them. If you have a different way to reframe that conversation, it goes differently. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's a person that I like quite a bit and and it just made me think of it when you're talking about her, but her name is Joan Halifax. But, But one of the things that she will talk about is letting go of the outcome, right? So sometimes we can, in the panic, get so worried about the question because we've already decided what the right answer is. And here you've got this human being and that answer might not be what you know, what you've prescribed to be the correct thing. And so how do you show up fully? How do you show up present with an individual with care? But you got to let go a little bit of what that outcome might be. Yeah, you you can't be emotionally invested in them doing the right thing. And that's so easy to say. It's so easy to set because <laughs> because then you have the balance of you don't want to be um, uncaring or or aloof, right? So a- another name drop, but I always like Brene Brown in the how to be soft up front and be vulnerable, but at the same time, you got to have a strong back yep. to be able to support it so that at the end of the day, when you get in your car and you close your day mm-hmm. or you close your office, then that's where you, you put those things aside, that ritual. It takes practice. It does take practice. It can be really, really hard. So just in this last little bit, because we could go on for quite some time, I think, in these conversations. And and I hope I didn't co-opt it too much with the staff, but I'm just worried about staff. It's a tough world out there. But one of the things that you were talking about was um, kind of the love languages and how we use this for our own self-care. And I'm so glad you said self-care is not just a bubble bath. Thank you for that. And we talked about some pointers too, right? Because you talked about, um, you know, kind of your budget, your energy budget tool Mm -hmm. and ritual. But can we talk a little bit about the love languages real quick? Yeah. For those who aren't familiar, the love languages are like physical touch, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and words of affirmation. And I have this lovely thing by Blessing Manifesting on Twitter or Instagram. She wrote down kind of what your self-care might be with these things. So in physical touch, for instance, it might be a massage, right? A spa day, skincare, taking care of your physical body. Um, acts of service would be things like therapy, giving, going to therapy, cleaning, organizing stuff. I don't know about y'all, but I love doing that. So I do not. Do yeah. <laughs> I love I love the end result. I don't love the process as much. I think the folks who love doing access service love organizing someone else's house or office more than they do their own. <laughs> um, but receiving gifts, give yourself some craft supplies. And by the way, craft supplies and doing the craft are two different things here. <laughs> and I think that's because they are different, right? Yeah. yeah. Buy some makeup, buy some new clothes, right? You do those things. Um, With quality time, though, it's the actual doing of the hobby or craft, whatever might be interesting to you, relaxing, reading, right? That's quality time for yourself. Under words of affirmation, things like positive self-talk really work for those folks. doesn't work for everyone. I personally find it hokey, (laughs) so it doesn't work for me. But I know it works for some people I work with really well. Journaling, self-improvement stuff, that really helps some people. So that's just some some general, whatever fits you, right? And it's a good thing to remember self-care is not a one-size-fits-all. It's very unique to the person. I think so. And and I think just listening to you and I going, I don't like to organize. And then you said you don't like words of affirmation. I think another piece is if whether you're doing this for yourself, really digging into what are those things that really kind of stimulate or care or soothe or whatever, 
whatever it is you're kind of going for. But also as you're practicing with people to learn how to cope and, and care, and we're building some resiliency and some, you know, we're kind of stabilizing. Don't presume your love language fits somebody else. We're really, really bad. I just went through like a leadership thing a couple of years ago, and I thought, oh, I'm making people crazy because I just presumed that what I, it's that golden rule, right? Treat others as you would treat themselves. But some people are motivated differently. Right. Some people want a lot of time with somebody. So if I'm spending a lot of time with someone that doesn't, that's not what they needed, you know? So, so yeah. being aware of who it is that you're working with and what their languages are is really important as you're doing advocacy work yeah. um, or as you're doing peer-to-peer work or, or whatever. I, yeah, I think that's folks a need a tool for that. We have a tool under our programs tab on our website. Uh, under self-care, there's a paper you can put out. People can choose what their self-care looks like. I think that really helps to think of it as a big picture and as a choice system for everyone. Yeah, and it, yeah. And it helps to kind of know what other people's are. I think yeah. it was Google. I'm not really sure, but I think Google did something like this. And on their cubicle, you know, back when we were all working at, at a place, right, in their cubicle, they had identified kind of what either what their love language was or what their personality. Mm-hmm. So you knew when you were going a meeting with an individual, this person wants decisive, direct talk. They don't want a bunch of banter. This person, though, needs to talk about how that Little League game was this past weekend. Like that's what they right. needed to hear, too. So mm-hmm. so it just helps with all that communication and that support. So, yeah. Is there any, I know we're kind of getting to the end of this. Was there anything that you wanted to go over as far as websites or connections or links but I know you have some great resources or do you feel we're pretty good? Uh, I think we've mentioned a couple times our website is www.mhaky.org. If you want kind of our more recent information and toolkits and things that we do, please check out social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and we even have a TikTok. So come and join us on any platform that you like. I still haven't done TikTok. I need to do it, I guess. Marcy, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you today. And I think, again, this is a conversation that everybody is having um, at the moment, both because it's what our programs do and what our providers do and our social justice and social work folks do day in and day out. But we have got to take care of ourselves, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is becoming quite apparent that that this cannot be overlooked. And it's critical to the services that we, and you deserve it, right? The services we provide yeah. and we deserve to take care of ourselves. So. Marcy, thank you so much. You've been listening to a conversation with Marcy Timmerman, who's the Executive Director of Mental Health America of Kentucky. And my name is Diane Fleet, and I'm here with KCADV's podcast series. Thank you so much. This KCADV project was supported by the Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families Award, number 2201KYSTC6, a contract with the Commonwealth of Kentucky, number PON2736-220-0001825. And VAWA 2021 Kentucky KYDOMES 00033, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this project are the views of the authors and do not reflect the views of federal, state, local, and or private funders.